Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I am such a big fan of coffee. I love coffee so much. And I think it's always so nice to get coffee with your friends. And you don't really ever question whether or not your coffee could be dangerous. Especially when you're with friends. And especially when you're in a luxury shopping mall like the Grand Indonesia in Jakarta. It's 4.14pm at the Olivier Cafe. And this is a reasonably nice cafe. And it serves typical cafe food like pasta. It also sells cakes and some alcoholic drinks. But one thing that it's known for is actually Vietnamese coffee. And if you look at reviews of this cafe on TripAdvisor or any other platform, you'll see that the thing that is recommended most often is the Vietnamese coffee. And now the Olivier Cafe has since been shut down, but we know that it was reasonably nice, it was very pretty, and some people even considered it a must-visit location when you're at the Grand Indonesia. Now, another fun fact about Vietnamese coffee, well, not so much fun as informative, is that Vietnamese coffees are usually very strong and it's almost like a concentrated drip coffee and it's usually mixed with condensed milk and it is incredible and I've mentioned many times before the best Vietnamese banh mi in Singapore is banh mi dit in Geelang and the best Vietnamese coffee I think is also there. Okay, so that was a digression. Now, we flash back to 2016. Pre-pandemic, the Olivier Cafe in the Grand Indonesia, Jakarta, a group of beautiful Indonesian girls, they are reasonably young and you can tell that they are in their late 20s and just at a glance, you can tell that they are beautiful, well-educated, probably rich because, I mean, who else would be hanging out having a casual coffee in the middle of the afternoon? So Jessica Wongso arrives first. She arrives almost suspiciously early she arrives at 4 14 p.m and she's had a busy day shopping so she puts all her shopping bags on the table and then she orders some drinks and maybe she's very thirsty maybe she's just tired of shopping and wants to sit down so her friends Myrna and Honey arrive a little bit later at 5 15 p.m and Myrna she takes a little sip of the coffee that Jessica ordered and maybe the coffee's been sitting out for just a little bit too long, but it tastes off. It's like the coffee is bitter, but is it spoiled? And literally, within minutes, Myrna, she's foaming at the mouth and she passes out. She's rushed to a hospital, but it's too late. And at 6pm, less than an hour after meeting her friend, Wayan Myrna Salehin is dead. Hi, I'm Teddy and welcome to A Briefcase. Today, we're covering the coffee cyanide murder, one of the most infamous and controversial true crime cases to have happened in Indonesia. 
Now, if you know anything about Indonesia and the Indonesian Chinese, sometimes they are referred to as the Chindos. You know that the Indonesian Chinese are rich and not just middle class rich. A lot of the Indonesian Chinese, it always feels like they have forgive me, but like fuck you, money rich. And Jessica Kumala Wongso, it feels like she was that rich. She was fuck you, money rich. Jessica was born in 1988 to Imelda and Windardi Wongso. She had two other siblings, a brother and a sister, but she was the youngest of three. At that point of time, her parents were the largest distributor of plastics in Australia. They were so rich that her dad was sometimes referred to as the Plastic King, which would have made her a plastic princess. Now, at around 2005, when Jessica was around 17, her parents ended up moving to Sydney because a lot of their business was based in Australia, so it just made sense. And just to show you how rich they were, they lived in the Harborside suburb of Double Bay. So Harborside meaning it's next to the Sydney Harbour. And now when the family went there, they were like, oh no, these plots of land, they look a little bit small, huh? And so even though the plots cost millions, like millions of dollars, Jessica's dad, the Plastic King, he's like, okay, I'm just going to buy two blocks of land in Double Bay right next to each other so that at least our house is a reasonable size. And so just for perspective, one of the further units, I, I did a quick check, one of the further units from the harbour, so not so close to the water, for a three-bedroom, two-bathroom townhouse, that would have been like $3.2 million. And he bought two units of land, right? So that would have been at least $6 million. And I'm assuming that he wasn't buying one of the plots that were far from the water. He would have been reasonably close and that would have been much more expensive. Okay, so now Jessica is in high school, so she doesn't leave with the family to Sydney immediately. She stays in Jakarta where she's taken care of by the staff and honestly at 17 she was reasonably independent already. And although like a lot of things in Indonesian culture, if you're reasonably well off, you'll probably have like a bunch of helpers, some staff taking care of the house, drivers driving Jessica around, so things like that. And so she didn't really have to take care of herself, take care of herself. Now, about three years later, when she's 20, she finishes school in Jakarta and she leaves to join everyone in Sydney, to join her family, her older brother, her sister and her parents. She enrolls in the Billy Blue College of Design to become a graphic designer. And the thing is, because she spent so much time apart from her family growing up, she wasn't as close. But because she was reasonably independent, she made a lot of friends and very easily in university. And the thing about being a foreign student is that you tend to gravitate towards other foreign students. One is because of the cultural differences, because it's, it's a little bit hard to get sometimes, and you tend to have inside jokes. And the other thing, I guess, is a sense of familiarity. And in the Billy Blue College of Design, she meets Hawaiian Myrna Salihin, and we'll call her Myrna. And Myrna had a boyfriend, Arif Somarco. And so now, Myrna is based in Sydney, which is how she meets Jessica. But Arif is based in Melbourne. So, you know, when your boyfriend or whatever is not around, you tend to be more open to make friends. And you tend to have more time in your schedule to nurture those friendships. And of course, Myrna was also from a rich Indonesian family. So it's almost like this inner circle where it's easier to become friends because of similar experiences. 
And what's also cute but also kind of heartbreaking when we know about the context of this case is that Myrna had a twin. She was one half of a set of twins and her twin sister was called Sandy. But we also know that her family was rich because her dad owned a courier company, so like a delivery company. He had a fleet of deliverers. And another thing that we do know is that her family was close, much closer than Jessica's family. And so they weren't the only two in a set of friends. They had a whole friend group. And there was Jessica, Myrna, Honey, and Vera. And so during that time in university, they end up having the classical university experience where they studied hard in the day, but they also partied at night. And I'm guessing it was especially fun because they did have the money to actually party hard. And the difference was also that Jessica's family was based in Sydney, so she ended up getting an Australian citizenship, but Myrna's family, not so much. And so Myrna was finishing up her degree in design, and she was ready to go home. She was ready to get married to her longtime boyfriend, Arif, and they were going to start a life in Jakarta together. And the thing is that he wasn't just a college boyfriend. Arif had been with Myrna for eight years. So they end up getting engaged. And the thing is that Myrna, she didn't really need to work. Not really. And so she ends up going back to Jakarta and becoming a socialite, which is also very busy. Now, a couple of years later in 2015, so the girls would have been in their mid-20s or so, Myrna, she returns back to Sydney to have a holiday and she just wanted to catch up with her college friends. And so she let her friends know that she was in town. And Jessica was like, oh my god, yeah, let's have dinner. And at that point of time, Jessica had an Australian boyfriend, Patrick O'Connor. And there's nothing wrong with having an Australian boyfriend. This isn't an Australian thing. The problem is, according to a lot of sources, according to a lot of speculation, Jessica's boyfriend may have been in the drugs, is, is, is speculated. And he had this kind of reputation. And Myrna thought that Jessica's boyfriend just wasn't a good fit. And she just thought that Jessica could do so much better, you know. And of course, this made things very awkward because Jessica didn't like that. And she didn't like that enough to just be like, okay, Myrna, can you let this go? No, she just got up in the middle of dinner and left, which is really a little bit rude. But I guess we don't know the context of their discussion. And so that was a very clear indicator to Myrna that Jessica was hella pissed. So after the dinner, she told her fiancé, okay, this thing happened with Jessica. And when she told him, he was like, oh, maybe next time you see Jessica, you should have like other friends like Honey or Vera there to act as a kind of buffer, right? Now, here's the thing. I feel like Myrna had a valid reason to be concerned. If I was Jessica's friend, I would be very concerned as well. Now, right after college, Jessica moves to the Leichhardt Estate in Sydney's inner west suburb. And we need to start from January 26. So earlier that year. So on January 26, Patrick O'Connor, Jessica's boyfriend, he ends up calling the police because Jessica threatened to kill herself with a knife during an argument, which by the way, is the right way to handle this kind of threat. Alright, and later that same year, after the meeting in August, Jessica, she gets drunk and she was driving her Audi A3, her red Audi A3 at 2am. She was drunk driving and her car hits a gutter and almost like an F1 crash is horrific. It flies through the air and it goes straight through a brick wall 
of a nursing home, a nursing home for the elderly. And thankfully, nobody in the home was injured, but the car apparently was just like feet away from the bedrooms of these people. And the thing is that Jessica, she she came away from it reasonably alright. This should have been like a wake-up call, you know? She had some bruises, she had a few cracked ribs, so it's not nothing, it's, it's an injury. She would have been uncomfortable, there would have been whiplash, but it would really have been a wake-up call. And the problem is that it wasn't. And over the course of 2015, Jessica had multiple suicide attempts. So two months after this incident, Patrick calls the police again because Jessica tried to poison herself with carbon monoxide in her bedroom. And then a couple of weeks later after that, the police are called again because Jessica had left suicide notes and an empty bottle of whiskey. And so when you look at things like this, you're like, oh, well, if you're blaming Patrick for your suicide, then maybe Myrna had a point when she said that maybe you should have broken up with Patrick earlier, right? And so by November 2015, Patrick had enough. And so he ends up having a restraining order filed against Jessica. And in retaliation, Jessica sends him multiple voice messages and text messages saying that she was going to harm herself. And then when she couldn't reach him, when he maybe like blocked her or something, she was reaching out to everybody around him, like his friends and his family. And it just feels like she was getting kind of unhinged. And then Jessica, she ends up losing her job. But according to some sources, she doesn't tell everyone she loses her job. She just tells them that she was looking for, quote-unquote, better opportunities in Jakarta. And the thing is that, you know, she could have maybe found a job with either her family or like with her family friends because she had that kind of connection and opportunity. But then she just left for Jakarta. And I think maybe because of the drunk driving charges, she was still in court in 2016 she was due in court next year but because of everything that happened i think sometimes a place can also end up feeling a little bit tainted now at this point of time myrna is having a great life so she doesn't really need to work she doesn't have a job she's just living her life having a good time as a tai tai and she's no longer a fiancé, she's a wife. And when you look at her wedding photos, she got married in Bali. She is glowing, she is beautiful, she is just living life. And the thing is that so many people say that she's just a lovely, lovely person. And objectively, she is very good looking. Her fiancé slash now husband is very good looking. They are objectively an extremely good looking couple. But the thing is that if you know anything about Indonesian weddings, you know that chances are if you are even remotely related to the family, right? Even remotely related to the bride and groom, you're, you're probably going to get invited unless something happens, you know, like the pandemic. Weddings are a big thing. And chances are that the family will use this as an opportunity to show off their wealth and their hospitality. And the thing is that Myrna and her husband, they seem like lovely people and we know that they have a wealthy background and they feel like people that would definitely want to share their happiness with their friends and especially their close friends from college and they did so Myrna invited Honey and Vera but the thing is that she didn't invite Jessica and that felt very intentional that that one to me felt like a complete snap because imagine your friends with this group of girls in college and one of them gets married and everybody else gets invited but you it feels almost a little bit hurtful and so in december jessica makes the choice to leave sydney and in early december she sends a message to all her friends in jakarta that okay i'm gonna be in jakarta during this time and now myrna didn't reply immediately but she was like okay why don't you come over and 
Why don't we meet with my new husband? And they meet on 12th of December. At this point of time, Myrna and Arif, they are already married. So they actually have to tell Jessica that they got married, but they didn't invite her. And that would have probably been a very awkward dinner. So the thing is that Jessica pretends to kind of shrug it off. And then she was like, okay, why don't we all meet? Why don't all the girls meet? So she sends a message to WhatsApp group and they all agree to meet on January 6th at Olivier Cafe in the Grand Indonesian Shopping Mall. So it wasn't just Myrna and Jessica, it was Myrna, it was supposed to be Myrna and Honey and Vera and Jessica, but I think Vera couldn't make it, so it ended up just being Myrna and Honey and Jessica. And the thing is, you could tell that Jessica really wanted to meet because she was the one organizing everything, she was replying immediately, she was like, don't worry girls, I'll treat you, I'll book the table. And very ominously, one of the replies, one of the replies from Myrna was like, oh, you know what? I love Olivier Cafe. I love the Vietnamese iced coffee. And so now we're back on January 6, 2016, which is a Wednesday. So the thing is that we know that they were supposed to meet at the Olivier Cafe at 5. The whole group of friends were supposed to meet at 5, but Jessica arrives at the mall closer to 3. And when she arrives back at the Olivier Cafe, she has a bunch of shopping bags, so maybe it makes sense that she was running errands, doing a quick shop, and according to some sources, these were shopping bags from a bath store, maybe like Bath and Body Works. And so she arrives almost an hour early, 45 minutes early, and she orders two cocktails and a Vietnamese iced coffee because we know that Myrna wanted an iced coffee. And the thing is that we know that one of the cocktails was for her, the other for Honey, and the coffee was for Myrna. And there are a couple of suspicious things in the CCTV footage. Like when the waiter brings the drinks to the table at about 424, almost like 45, half an hour before everybody else arrives, she arranges it so that the drinks are behind the shopping bags that she places on the table. And I don't know if this is a habit thing or a personal thing, but I usually put the shopping bags either on the seat next to me or on the floor. And Jessica, at that point of time, was sitting alone in one of those booths, so it doesn't make sense that she would put it on the table rather than on the floor. But maybe it's just a personal thing, or maybe the bags were very expensive, but I don't think so. Now, the other thing is that she was drinking a cocktail, like a drink. And we know that she ordered a cocktail for herself, but from the CCTV footage, it looks like she's almost like twiddling or stirring a drink. And this is speculation because we don't know because the view was obscured by the shopping bags. And there's been a lot of speculation again. It looks like she's removing the cap of something and putting something in and just fit. But she could have just been fiddling around with her cocktail. We don't know. And if anything suspicious is that at one point of time, it, it looks like she's looking right at the camera, the CCTV. So does she know it's there? Does, is she purposely using her bags to cover the CCTV? Or is this just like, it really could just be a massive coincidence, okay? And the other thing that is reported is that she puts the iced coffee right in the middle of the table. And we know what happens next. Myrna takes a sip of the coffee and in a couple of minutes, she's frothing at the mouth and she's completely doubled over. And at this point of time, Jessica actually turned around and asked the cafe staff what they put into the coffee, which is really 
which is really suspicious because now the cafe workers, they actually keep the cup. They keep a key piece of evidence just in case there's something in the cup that caused this. And what's also interesting and is also pointed out later is that in the footage, it seems like everybody's panicking and crying. Everybody, except for maybe Jessica. And I don't think this is a very fair piece of evidence because people can react very differently to stressful situations. But an ambulance is called and Myrna is rushed to the Abdi Waluyo Hospital in Mendeng, central Jakarta. And at 6pm the same day, she's pronounced it. And so Myrna is like a 26, 27 year old in the prime of her life. She's not just gonna drop dead for no reason. And the thing is that the police wanted to perform an autopsy. But Indonesia is a reasonably religious country and it's not common to perform an autopsy. And the assumption is that doing something like that will damage the body. But the police was suspicious. Everybody is so suspicious. So they don't perform a full autopsy. They convince the family and they are allowed to take samples. So this is a partial autopsy. And this is performed on the 10th of January at a police hospital at the Kramat Jati Police Hospital. And remember the waiter that kept the cup? They actually find cyanide in the cup. And some cyanide is also found in Myrna Salihin's stomach. So here's what we know. Myrna's reaction seemed to match with somebody who just had a large dose of cyanide. And there were samples also taken at the hospital about 70 minutes after her death. And these were testing for cyanide. And they were testing for cyanide in her gastric fluids. So in her bowel, in her liver, in her urine. But what's interesting is that these didn't come back for cyanide. Only the ones, only the samples taken in the police hospital. And then depending on who you ask, this could be normal. You could be poisoned by cyanide but not have these, not have the chemical show up in these fluids. So now another really suspicious thing is that Jessica had pants that she was wearing on that day and those pants were thrown away and her family says that the reason why is because those pants were torn but people speculate it's because the pants may have had traces of cyanide on them. And the other thing is that Jessica is a graphic designer from Australia so how could she have gotten cyanide whether it's from Australia or from Jakarta? So the first thing is that it's a bit suspicious to be carrying cyanide across the border. It's also very difficult to get cyanide anyway. You would have to be registered or you need to have some proof that it's for scientific use. And the police, they couldn't find any evidence that Jessica actually bought the cyanide. But the thing is that, especially somewhere like Indonesia, I feel like there would have been a way, there would have been a channel for her to get it, whether it's for this or for any other uses like cyanide fishing, which by the way is illegal but still practice sometimes. And so just three weeks after Myrna is killed, at 7am on January 30th, Jessica is arrested at a hotel and you're like, wait a minute, doesn't Jessica have a family home in Jakarta? Why did she check into a hotel? And that's what the police were as well. And through the case, Jessica exhibited a lot of strange behavior, like she was smiling, she was laughing, it was a little bit strange. And so everybody was wondering what the motive could be, and the most commonly reported one is that Jessica was angry that Myrna had overstepped and told her to break up with Patrick. But the thing is that at that point of time, they were already broken up. It was also reported that Myrna's dad said that Myrna had received some strange messages from Jessica. Like, Myrna, I want to kiss you. It's been a long time. And then this caused some people to speculate that it was a situation where Jessica might have been in love with Myrna, but Myrna wasn't reciprocating. But 
it would also explain why Myrna didn't invite Jessica to the wedding at all because she didn't want someone that she may have used to hook up with at her wedding, which is perfectly reasonable. And of course, this is something that the family wouldn't report because Indonesia is very conservative. But again, literally just speculation. I don't think I don't think this could have been the reason. The other reason that people bring up quite often is the wedding. Myrna invited the rest of the friends to the wedding but didn't invite Jessica. And so the speculation is that Jessica felt like Myrna purposely isolated her from her friends. And then that was the second reason. The third is, of course, there had to be a love triangle. There's always a love triangle. One of the theories, one of the speculations is that at some point of time, Jessica also dated Arif. Myrna's husband and I guess the extrapolation is now she's angry that Myrna is living the life that maybe she thought she should have lived and I think this one again is just pure speculation because this was according to a statement by an unnamed co-worker quote unnamed co-worker which is always very suspicious and she told this unnamed co-worker that Myrna was marrying her ex-boyfriend but the thing is that she didn't even live in the same city as Arif Arif was based in Melbourne and Jessica and Arif they only met like a couple of times at the most so that was like coming up with nothing from nothing and of course this was also brought up in court that maybe Jessica had an affair but this was completely denied by Arif and remember that Myrna was one half of a set of twins and her twin sister was called Sandy and Sandy actually also testified in court that after Myrna died she received a very strange text message from Jessica and so this message it was just an article about some poisonous Vietnamese coffee and so Sandy thought that Jessica was trying to convince her that the cause of death was the coffee itself not cyanide added to the coffee and so another key witness here was Honey who was also at the cafe and Honey said that when Myrna was pronounced dead at the hospital she thought that she heard Jessica say I'm sorry if, if this is true this is really quite suspicious and of course, Jessica is very wealthy and she has a very expensive legal team that denied these allegations. But because of the strange behavior at the cafe and really the circumstances of how things went down, on 5th October 2016, Jessica was found guilty. And now we do know that Myrna's family, they were calling for the death penalty, which in Indonesia is by firing squad. But we don't actually know what her final judgment was and I couldn't find any more information on it. Or maybe it's still up for deliberation. But we do know that Jessica was found guilty and that was the case of the cyanide coffee murder. Okay, so I did a little bit of digging on Reddit. And now what's really interesting is if you look at the case on the Indonesian subreddit specifically, the Indonesian subreddit, is that a lot of people, they sound like they think that Jessica might be innocent. And some of these people, I don't know if they are like real medical professionals or just like speculators that are very good at speculating on the internet. But, but some of the people on Reddit actually believe that the levels of cyanide found, like all the cyanide found in Myrna's body, they could be explained by other reasons like a, maybe like a bacterial growth in Myrna's stomach but again this is reddit of all places and we know that cyanide was found in both her stomach and in the coffee cup so how much of a coincidence is that and another thing 
they point out is that one of the medical documents submitted for the case actually said that the cause of death of this person awaits further examination. The cause of death of this person awaits further examination. So I, I agree it's a little bit strange. Why didn't they just put like the cause of death or cyanide? I don't know. I think they usually do this if they aren't 100% sure that it could be cyanide, but they're like maybe like 30, 40, 50. I don't know. If you are a medical professional, please let me know. And in the same thread, people are questioning whether it could be any other poison. But but the main gist of it is I don't know why so many people on the Indonesian subreddit are rushing to defend Jessica on this particular case. And I think one thing is maybe the media, if you look at all the sources that report on it, they're very definitive about the case and who's innocent and who's guilty. And just, just maybe the Indonesian subreddit knows more about reporting history, but some of them are, are Australian reporters and Australian newspapers. So I'm really not too sure about the context of this. But like personally, because of the history and the facts of the case and the circumstances of what went down, I am leaning towards the fact that Jessica might be guilty. But honestly, I'm completely unqualified. And it's, it, I guess it's something that without knowing exactly what happened, we can never be 100% sure of what happened and who is guilty and how how it happened. So I don't know guys, what do you think about this? If you have an opinion whether she's guilty or not, just drop me a line on Instagram and I'm like genuinely interested to find out after all of this, especially if you're Indonesian because you may have a bit more contextual information on like the news because a lot of the sources, the good sources were in Bahasa, Indonesia and you know, I was a little bit more limited Yep, so remember you can drop me a line at a briefcase podcast on Instagram. And as always, you can find me online at a briefcasepodcast.com. And do join us next week for another briefcase. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.